Okay, so in this episode, it's slightly different. I'm recording this at a time of historical importance in in my eyes. The Russians sent troops into the eastern regions of Ukraine and we are, everyone is watching very closely to see what happens next. Escalation in the in the Azov sort of area, the eastern Ukraine region is escalating and it is a very, very important time to be very careful with people's politics. You have Biden in the US, you have Boris Johnson in the UK uh, and in Germany, uh, you have uh, no longer Merkel, um, you well, you have her successor, um, that will be Olaf Scholz. So there, um, and then you have President Macron in France. So they are sort of the key players involved here. But what I wanted to do in this sort of, while it's it's a very sort of tense moment, no one really knows how the next few days are going to go. Interestingly for me, is that back in 2016, I wrote a, an essay or dissertation, sorry, or through for my master's degree. And while it it's not specifically just on the Ukrainian crisis, it was fresh from the few years or year and a half after the 2014 annexation of Crimea by Russia, where they sent troops with no badges into the Crimea Peninsula in the north part of the Black Sea and invade and effectively were there to protect the sort of quite a larger Russian population in terms of percentage wise and to take back the very strategically placed Crimean Peninsula uh, that famously 150 years ago in the Crimean War they lost a series of battles to the British, Sardinians, French and Ottomans, nowadays Turkey in in the sort of the southern part of of Crimea near the port city of Sevastopol. So, 2014, they take over Crimea. A lot of sanctions, Russian uh, sanctions were imposed on Russia by Western powers, but it was sort of ignored. I, I, I'm trying to think back where we were potentially distracted there. Maybe the this sort of idea of trying to maintain stronger or better relationships with Russia and as well as China in the in sort of in the noughties that was sort of bleeding through into the early teens and we sort of let it we let Putin get away with it and just seemed okay despite Ukraine's sort of um uh protest so it was a very interesting time but it was allowed for what allowed the Russians to invade Crimea so when I was preparing my dissertation, I it was very a big focus for me uh, because my dissertation was looking at Europe specific, specifically, and the the title is kept at arm's length: civil military relations and current threats to European collective security. So it was very much focused on European security, and so the three main areas that are and case studies that I used the first one was the war in 
the Donbass region in Ukraine and the rise of Azov. The chapter one is called a, a destabilized state, war in Ukraine and the rise of Azov. And then the other case studies I use are, it's called misguided morality, Europe's response to the refugee crisis. And chapter three, the elusive enemy, the threat of terrorism in Europe. So I talk about these different case studies in my dissertation, and I have not read my dissertation in many years. So for this episode, I'm going to go through the first chapter where it's all about the war in Ukraine, and I'm going to see what some of the conclusions and ideas and predictions that I made back in the summer of 2016 to see six years on or just under about five and a half years on how much it lines up to what's going on now. But to give some background on the dissertation itself, I'm just going to read the abstract to give a sort of a framework about what is going here. So the abstract is civil military relations could be described as two forces kept at arm's length, fixed in a relentless and continuous struggle for power, autonomy and political influence, collectively balanced by an assumption that civilian control is preferable. Ordered by a near-realist perspective, the preliminary analysis of this research, my dissertation, will identify and examine the position of civil-military relations relative to a state's power, its security and the anarchic state system. This conception frames an additional investigation that will first explore and determine the importance of ideological influences often prompted by prolonged exposure to dysfunctional civil-military relations, Secondly, it will unveil how a state's underlying obligation to morality can become embedded in the civil-military relations. And in line with near-realistic dimensions, this research will assess how immorality can impede a state's security strategies and undermine interstate relations. Finally, it shall divulge the psychological component of civil-military relations, including its intricate function in shaping cooperation between political and military powers when confronted by threats that pose both a physical and mental challenge. So in (laughs) reading this back in plain English, (laughs) I I really was trying to be colourful with my language there. Neorealist view in terms of a um, research perspective is very much looking at power. Everything is driven by power And the main players in the game of power are states, so countries. So that is the way I'm looking at this. I'm not sort of taking the critical theory, constructivism approach that is that's a little bit too theoretical for this type of research, uh, I I think I remember. So I took a very sort of simple, near-realist approach. Uh, It's all about power. And then the few, and then the different areas that I will explore to examine civil-military relations. The first one is sort of how ideology can uh, can can influence how often civil uh, well how it can influence the relations, and then how morality can influence it, and also immorality can impede and corrupt civil military relations, and also the psychological component of civil military relations and how that feeds into the relationship between the political and the military powers in a nation. Okay, so 
not read this back for many years. So just to recap, we're going to, this is how I'm going to compare it now a little bit to what we know now. So to summarize what we know now, the Russians have just invaded Eastern Ukraine, Eastern Ukraine, the Donbass region. It's, that's what everyone's saying. They have uh, the, under the charade that it's, um, that it's peacekeeping mission to protect the Russians there due to conflict. The Russian-backed separatists currently control the region. They are sort of in conflict with the Ukrainian forces and militias out, out there. Everyone is predicting in the next few days that the Russians will continue and take, through claiming their security to their borders and their nation, they will continue to into the Ukraine and take Kiev and, as a result, leave Ukraine with no government and no central power and therefore they'll just take the rest of Ukraine fairly easily. Ukraine is one of the largest exporters of grain so this is huge for Russian management of food and produce along obviously alongside their sort of access to the Black Sea. They currently have forces in Belarus in the north, in Crimea in the south, technically um, in Transvestia between Moldova and Ukraine, they have some forces, although uh, Moldova have pushed for them to be removed, but they definitely have some forces there. And also on the east, on many thousands, tens of thousands are in the east, in the east, in the Donbass region and behind them. So Ukraine is pretty much encircled and they are better than they were in 2014 when from my memory they were they had obviously had the revolution um the orange revolution where they ousted the president who was pro-russian and for many years had been pro-russian who broke away from nato the ukrainian people did not like that and so they they got rid of the president they brought in a temporary president um prime minister who was pro-nato the russians were not happy with that so therefore spurred on the separatist movement and caused and created the war in Ukraine in the eastern areas. So let's that's where we were. That's from that's sort of fueled the whole situation and now we're looking at potentially Russia and that they have basically completely disregarded Ukrainian sovereignty. They do not recognize it as a country. They don't think historically they should have a country which is absolute rubbish and I can talk about um that um for a, on another another topic but um and I'll, I'll come back to that later but let's dive into this chapter one that I wrote nearly six years ago let's see what it says about the war in Ukraine so the first case, case study will examine the rising tensions in the Baltic Black Sea region specifically in Ukraine this involves exploring the impact of Euroscepticism and the ambiguous threat posed by Russia. Recent events are an appropriate starting point, notably Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea in 2014 and the subsequent political turmoil and military conflict in Ukraine. The situation has been worsened by Russia's controversial support for pro-Russian separatists and the lack of substantial support from Western powers. Arguably, Russia's unnerving activity in the Baltic Black Sea region and the expansion of the EU and NATO are the central reasons for the escalation of tensions on Europe's eastern flank. Furthermore, despite recent events, relations between NATO and Russia have remained sustainable and subsequently sustainable, subsequently creating a sense of insecurity for Eastern Europe leading to political instability and further economic austerity. As a result, there has been a rise of determined ideologies, 
Euroscepticism and fierce anti-Russian movements in Eastern and Central Europe. They're sort of caught between two different powers in my eyes. Okay, carry on. Economic sanctions have primarily shaped Western responses to Russian aggression, as we are seeing right now, and have indirectly supported Eastern European nations on the front line against Russia. The strategy has proven beneficial for Western and Central Europe because it requires an achievable and measured degree of international collaboration, and its indirect nature diminishes any deterioration in their relations with Russia. For instance, most of Europe have, has supported EU sanctions to be extended until January 2017 and have aligned themselves with NATO to deter any additional Russian military aggression. For instance, NATO-led military training exercises such as Operation Anaconda 16 involve more than 20 NATO members. Also, this is the largest display of assurance in the East since the Cold War, perhaps symbolising their commitment to Europe's Eastern members. Yet, it is debatable how effective this strategy is in tackling the challenges on the front line. Notably, the situation within Ukraine is being overlooked. Therefore, neglecting threats on the front line to protect relations with Russia could destabilise the region and effectively undermine Europe's collective security. So, has Europe neglected it over the years? They Perhaps for the, for the immediate years after 2014 up to 2017, they were displaying their military commitment to the East. But have they got a bit lazy and they not done it they've not done it much in recent years? I'm not sure. I'm not and that this, but uh, they definitely were okay with having the World Cup there in twenty eighteen. So hmm. Okay, moving on. Overlooking the delicate situation in Ukraine has allowed an uncontrollable military conflict and volatile political situation to re-emerge in 2016. For instance, the standing ceasefire has continuously been violated and Ukrainian government is incapable of consolidating power. Since 2014, due to a breakdown in prolonged imbalance of civil-military relations, civil and military powers within Ukraine have battled for autonomy and political control over the states. This suggests ineffective civil-military relations in Ukraine have caused immense military ineffectiveness, inhibited the authority of civil powers, and have directly endangered the political system. As a result, civil powers have struggled to sustain and control a sufficient degree of military power to ensure political stability, subsequently permitting the rise of alternative military powers that have undermined the state's power and even challenged the international political system. So it's just the cycle, it's just not working. Ukraine is in a mess. For example, recently established and unconventional military powers have sought to extend their political influence by helping to forge a new geopolitical power block in the Black Baltic Black Sea region. Evidently, if this ambition became a reality, it would severely weaken the position of the EU, NATO, and undermine Europe's relationship with Russia, as well as provoke Russian belligerence. Therefore, the tense situation in Ukraine and surrounding regions not only concern boost in Europe and Russia, but significant threat to Europe. So if this idea, this, this alternative military power in eastern U- Euro- Ukraine, or starting in eastern Ukraine or, and spreading to eastern Europe, will provoke Russia and fracture NATO. And have we seen that since? Well, sort of. Anyway, moving on. The current situation in Ukraine appropriately portrays the consequences of collapsed civil-military relations, notably significant military ineffectiveness, the emergence of an insecure state and widespread corruption. Collectively, this leads to a rapid deterioration of the state's fundamental power, creating severe political instability. 
The ineffectiveness of Ukraine's military forces over the past few decades and in recent events suggests civil-military relations have become unbalanced and dominant civil interests are generating misguided military strategies. So what, have I, what am I saying there? It's basically the Ukraine's military are, have been completely ineffective for many decades and therefore the civil-military balance is just not there and the civil interests have dominated and they have sold off their tanks and hardware and all their resources because it's beneficial. And from my memory and understanding, the president, the pro-Russian president who was in power for many years in the noughties disbanded a lot of the Ukrainian military because it was in that would sort of build better relationships with Russia because they want a weakened Ukraine. Okay, so moving on. Namely, Ukraine's recent vulnerability has come to symbolize the failure of civil powers to fulfill a fundamental duty to the state, the protection of its people. So very a near realist point of view, the state's fundamental goal is to protect its people. Okay, carrying on. Consequently, political turmoil has ensued, transforming Kiev into a battle zone and causing widespread violence across multiple cities such as Odessa. These events have proven fatal, divided communities and exposed the critically weakened state of Ukraine's civil powers and central government. Conversely, the disastrous economic situation in Ukraine has contributed to the social unrest, military ineffectiveness and has sparked political conflict and instability. So, pausing there, from my, uh, from what we're reading in the news now, Ukraine is the second or, mo- or, the, mo- or the poorest country in Europe in terms of the widespread poverty, people living in awful conditions um, across the country. So this is still very much a factor. Financial obstacles can create tensions and lead to an imbalance in civil military relations. Notably, they can restrict a military's access to strategic resources and reduce tactical effectiveness. Equally, economic austerity can diminish public support for civil authority, particularly for the newly formed democracy established only 25 years ago, if you could call that that. Arguably, economic factors contribute to ineffective civil-military relationships, and so it is important to consider their impact. But it is also strongly argued that economic power is secondary to political and military power. And so in line with the researchers in this researcher's neorealist position, it is sufficient only to acknowledge the indirect and, and minor impact of economic influences when determining civil and military interests and examining civil military relations. So the economic situation in Ukraine is a factor, but because of my position of, of a looking at so mostly power as the key sort of center point in this dissertation, I have acknowledged the economic factors, but I'm not saying it is a main factor. And arguably now, while Ukraine is very poor and weak, it's not stopped them from being... It's not a reason why they are being invaded, you could say. There are lots of poor nations, but they're not necessarily all being invaded, are they? So I sort of agree with this as well. Okay, so moving on to sort of the last bit of a part of this chapter. It's possible civil-military relations in Ukraine are partially obstructed because, as a newly formed democracy... It is traditionally accustomed to its military exercising exercise its military exercising complete autonomy autonomy and structuring aspects of the political system, as we see in other nations in Africa, 
uh, when you set up a democracy in order to stop corruption or votes that are, or, or voting that is corrupt, military coups occur to take power and send the country in a certain direction. It's those with the military power of in newly formed democracies that have the overall authority. Okay, so moving on. Equally, civil powers may initially lack the self-confidence to influence military doctrine, doctrine and so fail to implement civilian controls. Additionally, military personnel are more often more experienced in international affairs and strategy because they have consistently and systematically influenced civil authority and nourished its political presence within the state. So military leaders are the best leaders in the country, so they end up taking over. Alternatively, civil powers lack diverse political aptitude and experience of military matters. Namely, knowledge is often drawn reluctantly from a politician's miserable experience as a conscript. Ukraine is not an exception. Its history as a democratic and satellite state of the Soviet Union is played with unbalanced civil military relations that are developed into an underlying problem that are yet to overcome. So uh, this, this is sort of bit vague but basically i'm trying to say what i'm trying to say here is that politicians in these new democracies ukraine included often politicians would have served for their sort of military service that many countries still have or used to have i know italy used to have it i know south korea currently has it and their years as a conscript where they're being forced to be an officer or infantryman or whatever, because they're being forced to it, many do not like it. And therefore their view of the military is sort of tainted a little bit and therefore and their experience is limited because they weren't really open to learning or becoming an expert in military matters. So overall there is a a sort of a heated relationship already for these politi- politicians that when they rise to positions of power in, this, in terms of civilian power, they do not like their military. Okay, so notably, after the Declaration of Independence in 1991, Ukraine adopted an 800,000-strong force from the Soviet Union, but in just over two decades, it had been dismantled and reduced to little over 100,000. So this was just before 2014. So this is something I touched on earlier. So that is a massive decrease in a matter of sort of 25, 23 years. Simultaneously, this process was was infected by corruption, with many political and military elite financially benefiting from the benefiting from the destruction of Ukraine's armed forces. So selling off the surplus, selling off the tanks and the hardware and the, all the weaponry to Turkey, Syria, all, all parts corners of the of the world. The politicians, a few, a handful of as you could probably, as they keep calling it now, Putin's cronies probably were involved here, selling off this uh, this massive, this this fairly large army, um, to uh, and making a lot of money, um, dirty, dirty money. For his instance, political leaders such as Minister Alexander Kuzmuk consistently disrespected the Ukrainian armed forces and sapped its dignity as they treated it as a meaningless resource that generated easy money. For example, the undue sale of the Ukrainian aircraft carrier Varyag as scrap to the Chinese, which was later adopted into the Chinese Navy. It is apparent that civil-military relations in Ukraine have continuously and consistently been strained by dishonest civil interests. In addition, this deep-seated corruption has developed into international scandals. 
For instance, in 2001, Ukrainian anti-aircraft missile hit a passenger plane, killing 78 people. The consequences of this scandal resulted in Ukraine's armed forces earning a tarnished reputation with the international community, while political elite evaded any responsibility. So Ukraine has is, is had a bad time when it was in, in the past. As a result, over the past few decades in Ukraine, it is clear civil interests have prevailed over military interests, subsequently prohibiting the effective civil-military cooperation, leaving its military exposed to manipulation, corruption, and creating a fundamental weakness in Ukraine's political system as a whole, and a perfect opportunity for Putin to take Crimea in 2014, and and now. As a newly established democracy, the recent expansion of NATO and the EU appealed to the civil interests in Ukraine who were concerned with their position in the international community. Aligning itself with these multinational organisations encouraged closer relations with Europe that would distance themselves from Russia Unfortunately, this process led to the armed forces suffering the most. Notably, it provoked the Ukrainian government to implement further money-saving cuts, for example, the privatisation of operational processes, such as outsourcing food and equipment suppliers. This procedure awakened an existing, existing conflict between clans of generals that further fragmented military power in Ukraine. In turn, corruption flourished, and in the few years preceding the 2014 conflict, Ukraine's military autonomy was almost non-existent. As a result, initiatives to push Ukraine closer to the West have been negatively received by some Ukrainian military powers. Furthermore, it was aggravated by the fact Ukraine were unlikely to achieve membership to NATO or the EU due to Ukraine's significant social and political problems, as well as a lack of useful resources to offer. It's all going on. The Ukrainian military are fragmented and they're being sort of sat dry by the civil, by the politicians over the years and left Ukraine in an incredibly weak state in 2014. Whether they are in, in any better state since, I doubt it. They might have a stronger military and militia, which we'll come on to shortly, but Ukraine is not in the best of states, despite it being, despite their slight, probably slight improvement since I wrote this. Therefore, events in 2014 were a spark for an already volatile situation and motivated Ukraine's military to challenge the extensive civil abuses exercised between 2008 and 2013. Notably, the military's dependable and combat-ready units were disbanded by the government and warfare and training initiatives that proved successful were terminated. Arguably, this marked a significant breakdown in civil-military relations because it rendered Ukraine's military fundamental military fundamentally ineffective and left Ukraine exceedingly vulnerable to external threats Russia apologies I have I do write civil military relations a lot in this distinction essentially Ukraine was offering an open invitation for foreign enemies and troops to enter Ukraine unsurprisingly this angered the people of Ukraine who were mostly proud of their armed forces and regional military history therefore the military's deprecate depreciation depreciated condition provoked political unrest decreased support for civil powers and encouraged support for military interests similarly with the threat of russia ever present and ukraine's relationship with the eu and nato faltering ukraine's position in the international community was immensely fragile and so in 2014 ukraine burst into chaos so that's taken us to a point where ukraine is that are too corrupt and and not on the best terms with their, their potentially new friends 
um, or hopeful friends of NATO in the EU. They are in terrible relationships with Russia and they have been for many, many years, going back sort of hundreds of years. Um, so the, they're in a bad situation. And within themselves, the, the military are fighting each other because they've, had, they've been sucked dry for 20 years. The civilian powers are corrupt and have the wrong interests and they've been they're about to be ousted in the in the orange revolution and russia ukraine is not in a good state have they got better since well all i know is that they have what i know so far is that they they they've moved they well we'll continue the short in what happened immediately after 2014 and into 2016 16 but what i know is that their current their current prime minister um is a comedian and well, was a comedian um, and he was elected in 2019 with over 70% of the vote and uh, yeah he's the president Vladimir Zelensky and uh, so I don't know how much you can do in five years in terms of fixing a nation but from my experience not that much but no let's continue Ukraine has burst into chaos in the build-up of all this corruption and this terrible uh, situation that they find themselves in so Russia's annexation of Crimea and the rise of pro-Russian rebels in eastern Ukraine expose the vulnerability of Ukraine's military forces to the world and the absence of function, functioning civil military relations. This did eventually provoke a pragmatic response. Notably, in autumn of 2014, civil and military powers, the government and the military in Ukraine, finally attempted to restore some of the state's military capabilities. For instance, new training programs, more frequent phases of mobilisation, and more effective recruitment campaigns were introduced. Notably, military formations such as the National Guard, a Donbass battalion, territorial defence battalions, and special departments for the civil order cultivated public support for the military powers and attempted to immediately bolster Ukraine's defence defensive capabilities. So, from my understanding, this has continued, and the sort of reservists aren't even aren't allowed to use, leave the nation country at the moment, and they're about to and they're about to implement martial law in Ukraine if they haven't done already tonight. Also, civil interests sought after plans to create a smaller, more professional, ta tactically superior and combat-ready military force that offered an adaptable and mobile defence strategy and could be controlled and contained by the civil powers. However, the fundamentally weakened and severely unbalanced nature of civil-military relations in Ukraine reduced the impact of these initiatives in particular. This agreement between civil and military powers about the executive structure authority and control over the smaller combat-ready force obstructed and blocked its creation. Therefore, Ukraine's armed forces have and will continue to be military ineffective because of an undercurrent of issues rooted in the prolonged breakdown and abuse of civil military relations. So they couldn't decide what to do with this new force that they were going to create to protect themselves. Crazy. For example, a large majority of Ukrainian military personnel are privately employed with the limited con contracts. As a, as a result, there is inarguably an insufficient number of professional soldiers needed to sustain it as an effective military organization, especially against the Russians. Furthermore, strategic miscommunication between civil and military powers have led to inappropriate weaponry, expensive equipment to be desecrated by untrained and ill-disciplined military forces. Ukraine's distinct military ineffectiveness and dysfunctional civil-military relations 
have provided an opportunity for volunteer and paramilitary forces to garner support and rise to the prominence in Ukraine. So this is where I found it very interesting, I remember. Arguably, the most significant consequence of inadequate civil military relations in Ukraine is that these unconventional military forces have emerged as fundamental elements of Ukraine's defence and central to the rebirth of of the Ukrainian army. For example, territorial communities, online volunteer groups and individual activists have provided crucial provisions, funds, contraband and contraband such as munitions. Possibly the Ukrainian armed forces have remained a proud and capable organization because it has continued to support the Ukrainians' people's desire to protect themselves against Russia and other external threats, but mostly Russia. Nonetheless, it is evident volunteer forces have had to supplement Ukrainians Ukraine's weakened military capabilities. For instance, the Azov or Adar battalions fought on the front line for the first 18 months of the war in eastern Ukraine and were essentially to contain it, were essential to containing the pro-Russian rebel uprising. Notably, these paramilitary forces are regarded as Ukraine's greatest weapon, but their greatest risk. These groups have grown in popularity by earning a reputation firstly as an effective combat force but also as a group that advocates nationalist sentiments. So these guys were vital in 2014 in controlling the, the pro-Russian separatists from spreading across the, beyond the Donbass region. But they were also extreme nationalists, and we'll, we'll come on to this now. So as a result, they have also attracted far-right volunteers from around the world and have supposedly encouraged the partial rise of neo-Nazi and anti-Semitic ideals. And this is where the Russians, pro- Russian propaganda and Russian narrative is that these Ukrainian militia in eastern Ukraine are neo-Nazis and they are the, everything that the West hates. So they're justifying that the protection from these people is required and therefore Russian forces need to enter the region. Moving on, the sudden rise of volunteer battalions have provided a problematic uh, have proved problematic for civil powers in Ukraine. By becoming the most war-hardened experienced soldiers and a vital asset in defence against pro-Russian rebels, it has highlighted the absence of functioning civil military cooperation and a lack of effective military power under the direct civilian control. Collectively, these conditions have provided the opportunity for these groups, specifically the Azov Battalion, to establish its political position and extend its influence. For example, Andrei Andrei Belitsky, the leader of the Azov Battalion, won local elections in September 2014, became a member of the Ukrainian parliament. I know now in 2019, though, that he lost his seat and his party no longer uh, no longer is present in the Ukrainian parliament. So interesting that they've sort of rose to rose to power, but they've lost it to a sort of very more of a left wing socialist president in recent years. But my view there is that maybe that means Ukraine has become more weak in in terms of the has weakened because the the guys that actually stopped the Russians from spreading back in 2014 were the only defense remaining for Ukraine were the right wing militias and if they are not not sort of going to be supported then is that a sign that Ukraine is sort of weakened arguably no I don't think I agree with that um so interesting so Moving on and finishing off this chapter, say his creed advocates to destroy everything that destroys our people. Very anti-Russian. 
And as he stated that, lang- and, he's, and he has stated that language, race, and immigration are key issues for Ukraine to address. Notably, that he argues that Ukraine might be able to re-establish its economy, public order, a strong army and navy, and perhaps nuclear weapons, but it cannot recover its purity of blood. He also advocates that Ukraine is part of a wider European white race of its half the highest quality that must lead a crusade against subhumans led by Semites. So he's got some colourful things to talk about, not very nice things to talk about, to say about his views of, of for Ukraine's future. But it's very national, pro-Ukraine, he wants to see Ukraine as a strong nation and a major threat to Russia. That is very opposing and you, you Putin would be wary of that to either stop it or they wouldn't or he wouldn't he know there would be a backlash if this view or perspective was a prevailing one in ukraine maybe now it's it is in a different way but it's definitely not as strong as this very right-wing nationalist view overall it is evident that the emergence of the azov group into the political spheres has endorsed the rise of extremist ideas that fundamentally will undermine the credibility and integrity of civil and political power in Ukraine, which is, you could arguably, it's just true. Ukrainian government has recognised this danger and have attempted to stifle the rapid rise of Azov Battalion by incorporating it and forces like it into the Ukrainian army. The government has also managed to withdraw the Azov group from the front line and its power base of Mariupol on the, on the sort of in the Azov sort of sea right on the, on the coast there in an effort to diminish its reputation as Ukraine's most important military asset. Yet, by recognising and legitimising the Azov Battalion as both a military and political force, it has diminished its efforts to contain them and reinforce their presence in Ukraine's political system. So it's sort of stuck between rock and a hard place there, the Ukrainian government, a very weak Ukrainian government at the time. They were grateful for their defence, but they couldn't really sort of acknowledge this right-wing nationalist uh, military battalion with a lot of power. Furthermore, Azov has managed to incite a new war against Ukraine's internal enemies. They consistently operate alongside police forces against immigrants and in opposition to an Islamic invasion, supposedly. Also, a former Azov commander currently leads the police and security services, strengthening this newly formed partnership, supplementing the Azov's new war and enhancing their political presence. Acts of solidarity have further reinforced this group's popularity, political ambition and intrinsic military strength. For instance, on the 12th of May 2016, the Azov Regiment spearheaded a march towards the Ukrainian parliament in Kiev, in Kiev protesting against Minsk, the Minsk agreements and elections in separatist-held regions. Ultimately, a breakdown in civil-military relations has not only allowed the Azov group to become national heroes and emerge as a, military, a significant military force, but it has also allowed them to establish their political influence and begin to implement their dangerous political aspirations. So... Digging down a little bit more here, Ukraine went through a very difficult time with this internally as well as externally. Um, so a possible reason why civil powers have struggled to deter the rise of... How long have we got? Not much longer. Okay. A possible reason why the civil powers have struggled to tear the rise of Azov group and the far-right sports is because Azov has, have not overextended themselves by openly opposing the government. Instead, they have gradually established its political base by utilising the patronage of political elites. For instance, it has garnered the support of Ukraine's interior minister, 
Arsene Avakov, the former governor of Kharkiv, notably the region that the Azov battalion originates from. As a result, the Azov group has not been impeded by prolonged conflict with the police or other civil powers that far-right groups commonly faced in the past. Instead, it has grown rapidly, extended its political influence efficiently and established itself as a critical political and military power in Ukraine. Yet the Azov group's ties with neo-Nazi ideals have provoked an international response and criticism, therefore it has not it has to consolidate its international credibility cautiously. As a result, the Azov group has controlled its emergence as a legitimate political power and rather ambiguously retained its far-right origins. So it's trying to balance itself, the, as of trying to establish itself in Ukraine and, uh, and try to separate themselves from the extremists. And I remember um, a few days ago, also, um, the Ukrainian sort of news or the Western news claimed that a very small proportion of the militias on the, in the eastern part of Ukraine are potentially neo-Nazis, trying to get rid of that sort of Russian narrative that they are all neo-Nazis and a danger to the world. So, moving, uh, leading on, for example, it is, it is leader Andrei Belitsky has consistently claimed that Azov is not interested in internal Russian conflict and denies escalating the conflict in eastern, eastern Ukraine despite the group's aggressive stance towards resuming the conflicts with the rebels. More recently, Belitsky has had to deny Azov involvement in covert sabotage operations in the Crimea and Donbass region. He, has, he also had to deny any association with the provocative video consistent consisting of fake Azov gunmen threatening Dutch nationals in Ukraine in response to a negative vote regarding a Dutch referendum on Ukraine's relation with the EU. Therefore, it is evident the leaders of the Azov group have proactively controlled its reputation and political position, including containing an overspill of political military ambitions. Arguably, it has succeeded in diminishing the effects of Russian propaganda, but it has not shrugged off its extremist, ultra-nationalist and neo-Nazi origins. So they've definitely tried... They've definitely tried to reduce some of the Russian propaganda and and some of the bad reputation they have in order to survive and establish themselves in Ukraine. But clearly, with with Blitsky losing his position, his seat in two thousand nineteen, it's clear Ukraine have perhaps softened uh, in a, in a sense of their extreme right wing views. And the, this group um, has sort of the anti Russian position. Has, has has sort of perhaps diminished or but then we're seeing now lots of people will say they will fight fight for Ukraine so it's definitely still there but it definitely didn't continue for very long due to perhaps undermining itself with its with uh, its reliant well it's some people being in the, on the sort of right wing views and nasty views there extremist views the international community community is perhaps more susceptible to the rise of extremist ideals and so has begun to consider the severity of the situation in Ukraine and the impact of ideological influences. Notably, the establishment of the Azov group has stimulated the rise of similar groups, encouraged them to strengthen their position in the region. This has further destabilized Ukrainian, Ukraine's political system because it has created a deep-seated divide between liberals who led the maiden revolution and the far-right extremists who have hijacked the revolution, exploited the absence of effective civil military powers. Therefore, with the rise of the Azov group, far-right ideals have become increasingly prevalent in Ukraine and have begun to suppress democratic and liberal ideals fought for during the Maiden Revolution. Consequently, an ideological conflict has emerged that is damaging and undermining Ukraine's internal security and political stability. So we know now that the sort of socialist left ideals, uh, democratic ideals, sorry, 
definitely prevailed in the 2019 election anyway, uh, where the um, current president was voted in and a lot of people in Ukraine are very... Um, it seems a lot of people in Ukraine are, are in line with with the sort of Western Europe and in the US point of view. Furthermore, confrontations between left and right wing groups on the streets of Kiev puts the government in a difficult position because they rely on the military capabilities of far right groups, but must also support liberal ideals to safeguard their relationship with the West, NATO and the EU. For example, confrontations during the memorial rally of Anastasia Barbora and Stanislav Malakov, who were symbols of the left-wing liberal groups, were confronted by activists discreetly supported by Azov, determined to suppress leftist presence in Ukraine and their desire to fight for civil liberties. Ultimately, right-wing activists attempted to gain a symbolic and ideological victory against the left. Therefore, far-right groups established as military and political powers have exploited dysfunctional civil-military relations to also oppress democratic and liberal movements in Ukraine. So the right wing are undermining the liberal movements in in Ukraine, causing further sort of weakened state of of Ukraine, or slowing down their recovery from a very difficult twenty years. Ideological tensions, the rise of Azov, and the weakened state of Ukraine's internal security have arguably been overlooked by the international community because of the recent allegations that the military. Conflict in eastern Ukraine has violated international human rights laws. For instance, recent evidence of secret, prolonged and illegal detentions of civilians, as well as, an accusa- as, well as accusations that prisoners have been tortured and mistreated. Amnesty, Amnesty International has stated that there is a power vacuum in eastern Ukraine, absent of law and order, subsequently facilitating an aggressive and uncontrollable ethnic conflict. For example, the Ada Battalion, much like Azov, has been accused of carrying out widespread abuses, including possible executions involving the beheading of rebel hostages. Arguably, the evidence of international war crimes and the sheer brutality of the ethnic conflict taking place has escalated the severity of the military conflict in Ukraine and has captured the attention of the international community. So there is, there was no one left to fight the Russian separatists, there were separatists backed by the Russians, but the only ones who did fight were horrendously extremists who did su- such a bad job that we couldn't even acknowledge it and see it as a good thing, letting the Russians get away with whatever they were doing. So it sort of undermined the, the sort of international response a little bit. Can't support these guys. Now, it's a bit different, I think, in 2022. The Ukrainian army is not majority right-wing extremists. They are a official army or their army that has been supported by Western powers a bit more. Maybe we can do a better job, perhaps, I don't know. Subsequently... By undermining the international set out standards, the situation in Ukraine is developing into a challenge to Europe's collective security. In turn, this should encourage Europe to recognise the effects of dysfunctional civil military relations in Ukraine. Nevertheless, the threat posed by the internal condition of Ukraine will arguably have to escalate beyond allegations of war crimes and a breakdown of civil military relations to provoke a direct and military response from the rest of Europe or the international community. So saying there is basically Ukraine needs to be in a pretty bad position to provoke military response from the rest of Europe and what's happening now <laughs> they are effectively lost heart part of their country the situation in Ukraine has definitely escalated notably the recent rise of far-right military groups has intensified the threat it poses and the subsequent conflict of ideologies Ukraine's condition has encouraged radical groups 
across the region to cultivate political authority and demand change, most notably the Intermarium Alliance, amalgamating the Black Baltic Black Sea region as an alternative to the EU capable of opposing Western influences and deterring Russian aggression. I remember researching this actually, thinking back, I watched some really dodgy YouTube videos about these people who want to create this new Baltic Black Sea region alliance. It's uh, It was interesting, to say the least. Strange. Traditionally, this project was designed to encourage cooperation in the region, not to rival and agitate the EU and NATO. Yet, due to the introduction of extremist groups, its design has changed. Therefore, the ideological military conflict in Ukraine has ignited an enthusiastic and warped introduction of this redesigned project. The initiative is also encouraged by the recent rise and spread of Euroscepticism across Europe, namely, the EU referendum resulted in the in the United Kingdom, equally pro-federalist federalist movements to see centralise the EU as alienated Central and Eastern European nations, spurring on the rise of radical far-right nationalist groups. Consequently, discussions of the Intermurium Alliance are a threat to Euro- EU and NATO and European stability because it would create a newly integrated geopolitical power bloc that, would lead, that was led and exploited by far-right radicals. So, summarise there is, yeah, when you, you did not go through a very good time 2016 as we all know and i know i think i come on to it in a minute the polish uh were not any weren't fans the germans were taking too much power the french were not happy overall yes europe was has had a very unstable 10 years in a political and economic sense but that links to military and russia has a weakened europe now without a doubt no matter how much People say that they are working together. There are nations that have have referendums and left the UK. There is this this movement of this another block that hasn't materialised, but yet the discussions were still had. Furthermore, let me carry on. Furthermore, it would be a question of the the question the commitment of Central Eastern European military assets to multinational initiatives. For instance, the recently established Visegrad battle group would no longer aspire to significantly strengthen and redevelop Europe's eastern flank, but simply aim to safeguard its various national borders. Conversely, the consolidation of right-wing groups within governments across the eastern... Conversely? Well, wrong word there. Eastern and Central Europe have facilitated the growth of, growth of some military power and capabilities in the region. Therefore, this is, has reinforced its role within NATO in opposing Russian aggression. Notably, the recent Warsaw Summit in July 2016 portrayed a maturing alliance that respected its newly accepted members, namely former Eastern Bloc nations. In return, NATO has used this as an opportunity to modernise Eastern European forces by offering integrated training programmes and support to reform defence institutes to fight corruption. Furthermore, this progressive initiative to redevelop and expand military capabilities should directly benefit nations on the front line against Russia such as Ukraine. Moldova and the Baltic states, however. NATO's recent interest in Central and Eastern Europe has been somewhat diminished when NATO offered offered a hand to Russia, suggesting NATO's concern not to deteriorate its relationship with Russia and to overcome tensions tensions are more important than the situation on the front line. So, (laughs) this was taken slightly from a Russian uh, news article, Sputnik News, I believe it's based on the resource that I've led, uh, I've referenced here. But overall, I'm saying is that NATO was aware of the situation in Ukraine and it was bad, and they knew that. But 
they'd much rather try to keep a, a good relationship with Russia than actually shore up and protect and consolidate the power and strengthen Ukraine. That is, they, they put their relationship and keeping a peaceful relationship with Russia as number one rather than strengthening a very, very weak Ukraine. Sort of dealing with the short term rather than long term. As a result, six years later, Ukraine is in a very weak state. And despite their efforts to strengthen and build their military forces from nothing and get rid of the right wing extremists out of their country, as a result, Russia is taking advantage of that. But overall, let's finish off. In conclusion, a prolonged period of unbalanced civil-military relations severely destabilised the military capabilities available to civil powers in Ukraine, subsequently creating exceedingly vulnerable state because it was protected by a critically ineffective military. Therefore, the absence of a function, functioning civil-military relations in Ukraine has led to widespread frustration and dissent that has provided the necessary conditions for far-right nationalist groups to establish themselves within the political system, subsequently leading to the suppression of liberal and democratic ideals and the emergence of an uncontainable ideological conflict. This conflict has been supplemented by the deep undercurrent of ethnic rivalry that has incited a brutal and overwhelming conflict in eastern Ukraine that continues to destabilise the region and violate international laws and standards. Consequently, nationalist movements continue to gain popularity and projects such as the Intermurium Alliance build momentum. NATO must might benefit from the redevelopment of military capabilities in Eastern Europe, but ultimately the situation in Ukraine and the region has begun to undermine the geopolitical balance in Europe. Therefore, the international community and Europe's leading nation must target the chronic imbalances in civil military relations disseminating from within Ukraine. This should deter the establishment of menacing ideologies and apprehend this source of widespread instability that will eventually challenge the stability of NATO, the EU, and threaten Europe's collective security. So, in many words, in the many words there to to finish off there is that while I didn't, it's not necessarily focused on Russia potentially invading Ukraine. It's 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 highlighting that a weakened Ukraine is. Is a bad. It's not just a bad thing for Ukrainian people. It's a bad thing for all of Europe and NATO itself. And NATO has, over the last five years, I don't think, based on sort of general uh, few assumptions there, but a general view, and because of the the last few days, NATO has not helped Ukraine enough. The EU haven't has not helped Ukraine enough. And while Ukraine has managed to win the, you could say, argue, win the ideological conflict by voting in a liberal left-wing president in 2019. And he has been uh, known for, well, he's been sort of, he's popular for fighting corruption and the Azov Battalion hasn't managed to ravage the political system much more than it did in its first few years. Nationalism is high in Ukraine, but not as high as it perhaps would have if if the right wing had won the ideological battle, but overall Ukraine has is incredibly weak. They are weak from in, uh, from their own selves, fighting themselves, but they have not been given enough support. And as a result, the Russians are in, have invaded the Donbas region. Pretty pretty obvious that they've done that. And I am watching closely to see if they take advantage of this 
very weak state that where the civilian political powers have no strong relationship with their military powers in, and they, if they do, they've only had to manage to build it over the last few years. So we will see how that goes. I really hope it gets resolved peacefully and the Russians don't get what they want. But it's pretty clear, and many people are saying, that they're going to take advantage of this week in Ukraine and invade all the way and take it and take and where that goes i don't know but it's really interesting to see what i said back in 2016 all this research into ukraine the internal workings of ukraine all the way back from 1991 so i hope you enjoyed this this is a slightly different podcast about episode because it's the timing and i it was an important topic to me i not many people talked about it for many years it was top top of the news in 2014 i really enjoyed researching in 2016 there was a few bits that went on then but i can't believe it's come back i always thought russia would take advantage of this ukraine is so weak it's trying to become more in line with the western world but russia does not want a country like that on its border so i really hope really hope this gets resolved peacefully i hope you enjoyed this extract from my dissertation i did i've not read it in many years so Um, but no please listen to my other episodes and i enjoy and look forward to recording another one thanks so much guys